Will you please join with me in the words of our prayer of confession? Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Most holy God, on our knees we bow before you and give all praise and glory to your mighty name. You are love in its purest form and are truly the epitome of a relationship based in love. As you have loved your son Jesus since before time began and sent him to be one with us, you have also loved those whom he gathered to be his own. Lord, we know that Jesus prayed for each and every one of them, and not just them, but for all who would hear the message that he taught them and shared with all the world. We are the hearers of that message. We are the ones who are loved and prayed for, along with all who have come to know and love Jesus. We give you glory, God our Father, for the perfect love that we are able to share because of your love for your son Jesus. Lord, we pray today for our church family and celebrate with those who are bringing their young children to be baptized this morning. Hear our vows as we promise to raise them in the church and be your faithful servants as we nurture them in the Christian faith. We know that this has also been a difficult week for others in our congregation who have been in the hospital and for those who have had surgeries and are now recuperating. May they feel your hands of healing upon them and see the ways in which you've been working to guide the doctor's hands to skillfully restore their health. We also pray for your love and comfort to be with Henry Schmall and his family following his father Merlin's death this past week. As his family begins this journey of mourning, we ask that your blessings of peace and strength will hold them up in their time of sadness. And Lord, our prayers extend outside the walls of this church where we're nice and toasty warm. And we pray for those who don't have homes, for those who have to be out in the cold sometimes for those who might be working or, or just have to be out in this weather. And we especially pray for those who don't have homes that they find a warm place to be, especially at night, and that uh, they can have a warm meal and that they can find a safe place to be to keep them out of the cold. All these prayers we offer up to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray with you, Jesus, for all these prayers and concerns that we have written on our prayer cards, those that we have submitted to the prayer wall, and those we lift up silently in our hearts. And we pray together those beautiful words you taught your disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us.
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to tell you something I noticed this morning as the choir sang. You know, I've heard a lot of Christian music in my life. Some of it really good. Some of it okay. Some of it sung by people that really, really, really want to have a great performance. And some of it sang by people who really believe it. And i got to tell you one of the praises that I have as leader of this church is that when this choir gets up here to sing, you don't have to worry about whether they're believing what they sing about. Amen? Now, they ain't perfect. They're not perfect. I know some of them, but they are living what they sing. Uh, And praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for, for a choir that not only orders the notes in the right way, but has their hearts attuned with Jesus. So I say amen to that. And that leads well, you know, when you, when you sing a song about, you know, just letting God be the air we breathe. That's exactly what this is about this morning. John chapter 17, uh, verses 20 and following. The words are in your hands. They're probably on the screen. Hear the words of God. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you and me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and I love them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. May God add his blessing on these words, and may you add your blessing to Pastor Keith as he comes to pray. Let us pray. Lord God, uh, Pastor Keith comes this morning with words uh, formed uh, by your Holy Spirit in his heart and put on a computer screen and printed out on pages so that uh, he may direct and guide us well in your way. So, Lord, embrace him this morning. Lead him in the steps of righteousness, in the path of faith that you would have him take, and let him speak with boldness uh, the word that comes from your very heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. In John 17, we continue with Jesus' prayer, the longest recorded prayer of our Lord. Uh, that we see in all the scripture, and we get a picture into what's important to Jesus. And in this prayer, the night before he's to be crucified, he prays for you, and he prays for me. And and that's awesome to to know, isn't it? That, That God is thinking about you. And I don't just mean sort of in a general sense, but literally you. He's praying for you. He's praying for Jason. He's praying for Patty. He's praying for Gwen. He's praying for Laverne. He's praying for Pastor Mike. He's praying for 
for all of us here in this prayer because he's praying that all the disciples will be brought to unity and specifically not just for the the 11 that remained with him there, but those who would come to believe in him through their message, which that's us. It's the succession of, of the message of the gospel that's passed down over the years that is the plan of God and that God is praying for here. He's praying for us. But what's he praying for? What's his prayer? That they win the Powerball so that we can build our church, right? Is he praying that everything goes okay at work? That we get that contract we were hoping for? Or that we make the winning team? Or is he even praying for a good report from the doctor? Or for a, a lost child to be returned to us? He, he, he's not praying for these things as important as they are. He's praying for something even beyond that. Something more important. He prays that we are all one in God. Now that's a strange prayer, isn't it? And I say it's strange because it's strange to us. Because let me ask you a question. You don't need to raise your hands. When's the last time in your prayer life you prayed that all the believers of Christ, all the disciples would be in complete unity? Probably not. It doesn't make the top ten prayer requests. I don't think I've seen that coming in on a prayer card in a while. It's not something that we tend to think about. Because for us, prayer tends to be more about the things that are happening around us in our lives every single day, isn't it? Prayer's about the people that are close to us and the things that, that we struggle with and that we wrestle with. And that's just kind of where we get stuck. It's as if we have some sort of blinders on our spiritual eyes and we just see what's right in front of us. But that's not where Jesus is, is it? Jesus sees all. There's no circumstance, there's no issue, there's no problem that's beyond His scope. And yet, when it comes time for Him to pray for us, His prayer is for unity. He prays that we are all one. In God. And I love this. It happens because according to the scripture that Pastor Mike read. Because of the glory of God. Now remember a few weeks ago I talked about the glory of God. And we defined it as God's approval and happiness in his children. That's the glory of God. It's when he is made happy because of his children. Complete unity with each other, and with God. You see, what Jesus is looking for in His prayer is so much deeper than the stuff we look for. See, we're busy asking God to solve our problems here on earth, and Jesus is praying about the family reunion of all of His children beyond this earth. It's as if you and I are so mesmerized by what happens when we go to the line for the ride in Disney World that we don't even realize that the ride's coming. You ever, you ever do that? I went to Disney World when I was a freshman in high school, and I'd never seen anything like that before. It was pretty amazing. Have you guys have been there before? A few of you have, maybe? You go, everything about that place is, is intentionally designed to blow your mind. Everything. 
So even when we're standing in like the lobby area and they have the screens of what's happening and the displays and everything, I'm like, wow, this is incredible. And it's like, just, just wait till you get inside. I remember going to uh, the Smithsonian Museum with my parents when I was growing up. And just you walk in and just the stuff in the lobby there will, will blow your mind, you know. And, and, and you, you never really realize how amazing it is until you get beyond the doors. A few years ago, I, I went to uh, St. Peter's in Rome, where the Vatican is, the big church there. And, and oh my goodness, I mean, just to walk through the front doors and the portico there and the marble and the granite and the, the art and everything just right there in like the place where, you know, you hang up your coat. It's better than anything we've ever seen. And then you step inside and you see the stained glass, you know, you see the statues. You see the work of Michelangelo and da Vinci. And you see these things. You go into the Sistine Chapel and, and you look up and you see that ceiling. I mean, if you've been to a place like that, you know that what's inside, beyond what you can initially see, is far greater. That's how we are with our prayers, you see. We're stuck in this little world right here. But what Jesus has for us is so much greater and what he has for us in this prayer is the key to understanding what it is. And it's found in unity. The main course of all creation is relationship with God in unity with all God's children. But sometimes we don't get that because we're so full of the appetizer. You ever go to dinner and you, you fill up on the bread or you fill up on the appetizer, then the main course comes and you don't even have any appetite for it anymore? Sometimes we fill up ourselves with the stuff that we see in our life, but we don't realize that the main course is this relationship with God and unity with each other. So why does Jesus want unity? Why is that so important to him? Well, because Jesus is relational, and we were created for relationship. And because this is true, the fullness of relationship is what defines us. Think about this. Jesus has always existed in relationship. It says here in this, in this text that God had loved him before the creation of the world. Before the world was made, God existed eternally in relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in unbroken unity. This is the nature of God. It's the very essence of who God is. God exists in relationship. And because you and I were created in the image and likeness of God, we are relational creatures as well. We were created for relationship. And the fullness of relationship, therefore, is what defines us. Another way to say this is that you and I are never more real than when we are in relationship. You're never more who you are than when you're in a relationship. Think about that. How can you really know what kind of a person you are outside of relationship? You can't tell anything about a person until you see them in relationship, can you? You can't tell how kind a person is until you see how they operate in relationship with others. You can't tell how generous someone is until you see how they operate in relationship. You can't tell how funny someone is until you see how they operate in relationship. See, that's a key to understanding 
the human experience is to understand that without relationship, we don't know who we even are. You see, it's because you were made. You were made for that. Now, think about this. God created you to be in the best kind of relationship. What's the best kind of relationship? Well, if like what I said earlier is true, if you were created to be in relationship so that you could be more real, then the best kind of relationship is the kind of relationship where you can be completely you. Where you can be everything that you are in that relationship. Do you have that kind of relationship? Do you have those relationships where you can just be who you really are? They're kind of rare in this world, aren't they? Because we're so broken as human beings. We're so relationally challenged because we're so focused on ourselves that we play this crazy game of expectations in relationships. And we constantly are judging other people. We're constantly comparing ourselves. We're constantly trying to give people not who we really are, but who we think they really want us to be. Does that make sense? And when we do that, there's all sorts of of issues and problems that arise. See, what keeps us from being real is that we care too much what other people think of us. And we care too much what we think of other people. Right? It's called being judgmental. We compare ourselves too much. You ever do that? You ever compare yourself to other people? I do that sometimes. You know, every time I do that, I lose. Every single time I lose. Because I can look at somebody else's life, and I can compare myself to them, and, and if by some stretch of the imagination I compare myself to someone else, and, and I feel like I'm better, I feel like I'm, I'm you know, more whatever I want to be than they are, have I, just, have I just won? No. I've become prideful. I've become arrogant. I've become self-righteous. I've become condescending, you know. So when I compare myself to someone and, I've, and I feel like I, I'm better, man, I'm really worse. It's a dilemma, isn't it? And what happens when I compare myself to other people that are way better than me? I, 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 do, I, do I come out humble and, and more Christ-like? <laughs> Not usually. Usually I come out, you know, frustrated, depressed, full of, of doubt in myself. Maybe a little angry. You ever do that? You look at someone else, man, they've always got it together. You know, their family's perfect. Their job is perfect. They have everything going well for them. You see their pictures that they put online. You see their life and and everything works out great for them. They don't have any real problems. And why can't I be more like them? Why isn't my life more like them? Those jerks, right? I haven't won there either, have I? See, whenever you compare yourself to someone else, you always lose. So you weren't made to do that, you see. You were made to enjoy other people, not size them up and see how you stack up against them. You were created to be in real relationship. And that means to be able to be the real you. It's hard to do that, though, isn't it? Because we're so worried. So we walk on eggshells around other people. We keep our feelings to ourselves sometimes. 
Or we keep our opinions to ourselves sometimes. Or we keep our, our emotions to ourselves sometimes. Because, because if we express these things, that might damage the relationship. That might, that, might, that might make them not like us anymore. Now, imagine a relationship where expressing who you really were doesn't damage the relationship. It strengthens the relationship. No matter what it is. No matter what you reveal. That's the relationship that God wants you to have with Him. But He doesn't just stop there, does He? He says, I pray that they all be one as we are one. He doesn't just want you to have that relationship with God. He wants you to have that relationship with each other. That's this unity. You know, maybe you have relationships like that. I pray that you do. I I do. I have some relationships like that in my life where I know that I don't have to hold back. I can just be who I am and whatever. Those are great, aren't they? Those are treasures. If you have people in your life like that, treasure those relationships, nurture them, take care of them. Oftentimes I find that, that you don't really discover you have those relationships until you need to, until you've gone through something heavy or are going through something heavy, until you just can't deal with being fake anymore. And the real you just comes out. And maybe when that happens, many scatter. But usually a few remain. Those are your friends. That's the people you're in a relationship with. Treasure that. But imagine if that were like, if it were like that with everybody. What, a, what an amazing world it would be. What an amazing church it would be. See, this gives us a picture into what we were created for when we consider what kind of relationship that would be. Those relationships fill our souls. So let's talk about what does unity mean to Jesus. When he says, I pray that they would be one, right? What does he mean by that? Because that's important for us to know. Does he mean that we all become robots? That we all become carbon copies of each other? Does unity mean that everyone is exactly the same? You know, for some people it does. In some situations it does. You come into a community or a church or a gathering and, 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 and there are all sorts of expectations around your life and beyond just your, your theological uh, beliefs or your morality, there are expectations sometimes, well, this is how we dress at this church. These are the songs that we have to sing. These are the things that we do. This is the way that we talk. These are the words that we use and this is who we are. And if you're not one of us, we kick you out, you know, we have no unity. But what does that mean to Jesus? When he says, I want them to be one, what does it mean? You know, the Apostle Paul wrestled with this early in the life of the Christian church because the Christian church was filled with human beings, right? Just like you and me. And just because they lived 2,000 years ago closer to the time of Christ doesn't mean they were any less human beings than we are. So he had to address some of these issues. And in, in 1 Corinthians, he's, he's writing to them about about unity, and he's scolding them because of their lack of it. He says to them these words, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. Now watch why they're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? 
Are you not mere, acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. I think it's very interesting that in his critique of this church, in describing what makes them worldly, he doesn't point to things like immorality, although he would later. He doesn't point to lack of theological understanding. Well, you just don't know enough about God. He doesn't point to uh, you know, anything other than this, their lack of unity. They're fighting with each other. Their desire to create factions amongst their own church. To find some human being they can hold up and say, well, this is my guy over here, Paul. Well, this is my guy over here, Apollos. And Apollos is better than Paul. Well, Apollos is better than Apollos. And, and, well, if you like him, I can't be your friend. Well, if you like that person, I can't be your friend. It's just like us, doesn't it? We're so good at dividing ourselves. We're so good at quarreling and becoming jealous. It's worldly to do that. You know, our 25,000 plus different Protestant denominations that exist in the world today are not consistent with this prayer. They're not a win for Christianity that we have to have so many different types of churches for Christians to go worship in. It's not for God's glory that we have to have divisions even in our own town between Christians. It doesn't show the world the awesomeness of Jesus. It shows the world that we can't get along with each other. It shows the world that we can't agree. If you've ever been in a conversation with a person who who is an atheist or doesn't believe in Christ, chances are one of the things they're going to say to you is, well, why should I... Believe what you say. You Christians can't even figure it out amongst yourselves. You Christians can't even agree on anything. Why should I believe anything that you say? And you know what? That's a great point. It doesn't bring God glory when His children eat at different rooms. You know what that's like, don't you? You ever eat at different rooms in your house? People are eating. It's, no, come together. You see, God created us to be in this relationship. But it reveals when our disagreements and factions overtake us that we're still worldly. You know, even in our own denomination, even within United Methodism, there's factions and groups and splinters and opposing camps to one another. And oftentimes it feels like even within a group that is within a group that there are divisions And if that's how you come down on this issue, you're my enemy. And if you believe that person or you like that thing or you think that way, 
our, our unity is destroyed. Reveals that we're still like the rest of the world. Locked in a cycle of pride, judgment, and comparison. And that does not promote real relationship. It's not how God operates relationally. That's not how we were created to be. Quarreling, jealousy, factions, that's consistent with our sinful nature. It does nothing to show the world the glory of God. Now, Jesus desires unity, but not necessarily uniformity, because he knows that we're all different. He made us that way. Did you notice in Paul's uh, description here, he talks about how one was given the ministry of, of planting the seed, Another was given the ministry of watering the seed, but we all work together, you see. He says we're all co-workers in God's plan. You can only be co-workers if you all have different jobs and different ways that you contribute. That's unity. But not everybody's exactly the same. It's not uniformity. Think about it for a moment. If the goal is real relationship. How can you have real relationship if everybody's exactly the same, right? The thing that makes relationships so much fun and so fulfilling are the differences, right? The, the ways that we, that we complement each other, the ways that we, that we are different and, and, and experience each other, that's what makes relationships so exciting and so unique and so amazing. Not if everyone's exactly the same. What would you ever learn in life? The only people that you surrounded yourself with were ones that were exactly like you. Right? Every Friday night, you'd go to the same exact restaurant. Every time you turned the television on, you'd watch the same exact program. Every time there was an issue to be discussed, you'd have the same exact opinion about it. You know? What kind of life would that be? It'd be incredibly boring, wouldn't it? You see, Jesus created us to be different. But we have to have a foundation in the gospel. That's the key. That thing that unites us, that thing that it all grows from, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that's the foundation, then we're free to be real with who we are and in unity, but not necessarily uniformity. See, this diversity also helps us in our mission, doesn't it? It makes us more effective for the gospel. So, How does our unity bring the world to know Jesus? He makes this prayer. He says, I pray for those who will believe in them through this message. I I, I, and you and them and me and I and them and, and everyone together for the purpose of the transformation of the world. Remember a few weeks ago in this prayer, and if you if you don't remember it, just read read the first part of John 17 again when you get home. Jesus says, I pray, but my prayer is not for the world. Remember this part? but for those whom you have given me, right? Now, if you just grab those verses out of context, you might think that Jesus doesn't care about the rest of the world. Only those, those those men that were gathered there. Because it seems like, well, why isn't Jesus praying for everybody? Why is he only praying for his friends? And, And some Christians will grab that and say, see, that shows you that Jesus only cares about those who believe in him, so we need to kind of have a little holy huddle church going on here, and the rest of the world can just do its thing, and we're just going to focus on ourselves, because Jesus only prays for, for those who believe in him. That's, that's a short-sighted view of that text, because when you look down here, you see the reason why he was doing that. 
Jesus prays for the, not for the world, but for the disciples because he understands the future of the world lies in the message that will come through these disciples. In fact, what he's doing there should show us all the more how much he loves the world because he's preparing this team of people to go out into this dangerous world with this powerful message. And he's saying, right now, God, I want to just get my team together and pray for these people so that they can go out into the world and fulfill their mission. Why would he even bother if he didn't love the rest of the world? Why send them out to a world that he hates? Why send them out to a people he has no interest in? This proves all the more what his mission is. Sounds like our mission, doesn't it? To make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, right? This is where that comes from. That's why it's important. You don't just get your your, your varsity team together and, and work really hard for practice, but then don't show up to the game. He's gathering his team and he's saying, all right, let's do this. Let's get ready because there's a game to be played. There's a mission to be won. We've got to remember that. The transformation of the world comes through the preaching of the gospel by the disciples of Jesus. So he connects his plan for the world to these disciples. You know, this is crucial to understand because Jesus isn't just hoping that things go well for this poor world. He's creating a plan. And he's sending in his best to get the job done. Hey, that's you if you believe in him and are faithful to his message. Hear the answer to this prayer. If you're willing, if you say, coach, put me in, I'm ready to go, then he says, okay. The question is, will you have somebody backing you up when you go in there, right? He knows that you're going to need others. He knows that you need the rest of the team. Remember, the mission, it's Jesus. It's not our mission. It's Jesus' mission. We belong to him. We don't create this mission statement because we like the way it sounds and we think it's cool and clever and, and, and pithy or whatever and we can, we can remember it and put it on a coffee mug. This is Jesus' mission. The church doesn't have a mission. The mission of Jesus has a church, you see? It's his plan. It's his goal. And we are simply his servants, united together with one another and with him in order to get this mission done. Notice this is what Jesus says is the most crucial piece of the mission. In John 13, 35, he says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the key. Not if you're the smartest. Not if you have the biggest church. Not if you have the loudest mouth. Not if you are the most theologically astute. Not if you are the most influential person in your community or the best dressed or the world champion, whatever this, or the richest or any of that stuff. That isn't what he says is going to show the world anything. It's whether we love each other. Now, which is harder, right? If we love each other, 
That's what he says is going to make the biggest difference. Just as Jesus loved you. Remember, as you think about that, that Jesus is the measuring stick of what love is, by the way. See, it's easy for us to all go, oh, yeah, we just love each other. That's great, 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 great. But what does that really mean? He says, as I have loved you, that's how you should love each other. Now, what does that mean? You know, some people think that loving each other means that you just leave everybody alone. You give them their space. You don't have anything to do with them, right? Well, I love you. That's why I'm never going to talk to you, you know? Well, I love you. That's why I'm not going to help you in your life when I see that you're completely self-destructing and falling apart. Some people think it's loving to just give someone their own way, even if what they want is bad for them. Because they don't want to make them mad. Right? Is that loving? Is that the way Jesus loved people? Did he tell the Pharisees, hey, you know, know, these these, these Pharisees over here, they don't really get it, but I don't want to make them mad. They've studied their whole life. I don't want to tell them they're wrong. No, that's not how Jesus was. Is it loving to, to protect people from their own mistakes so that they don't have to deal with the fallout of them? You know, some people live in that world where we don't want anybody to fail, so we step in and fix everything, and we create people who don't understand consequences. Is it loving to lie to people when the truth is difficult to hear? You know, honey, does this dress make me look fat? Oh, of course not, you know. Sometimes we have to wrestle with what loving is. Always remember, it's not your feelings or preferences or even your trying to navigate through relationships that defines what love is. It's the love of God, the love that God had for Jesus even before the world was created. See, that's our standard. So what does it mean to love God or to love the way God loves? In closing, two things. First thing is this, be real. Be real. I encourage you, just be real. Learn how to do that. But it only works if you're willing to accept other people when they're real too, okay? You can't just demand that you get to be real, but not extend that to others. We all get to be real. That's the first way that God loves us. God has has shown himself to this world in Jesus Christ. He's held nothing back. And that's the key. If you want to experience those real relationships, the kind that God made you to do, then start by just being real. Secondly, and this goes with the first, because if if you're not willing to do the second, the first becomes kind of difficult for people. Lay down your life. Lay down your life. Jesus said there's no greater love than a person can lay their life down for their friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. That's what he said. You can be real, but you also got to be willing to lay your life down. You got to be willing to put other people first. You got to be willing in your realness to give other people their way, to sacrifice yourself for them. See, that's the love of Jesus. That's what he's shown his disciples, and that's what he told them. So, what would your life look like? Forget that for a second. What would your day look like today? If you and I were to love each other in this real way, that's his prayer for us. That's the goal. That's what lies beyond the lobby of this world is that real relationship. You know, when you get to heaven, when you're with you, you're going to be still, you're still going to be you. I'm still going to be me. We don't completely become different people. We're still who we are that God made us to be. But yet, 
when we get to be with Jesus, all of our focus on that person and what they have and his car is nicer than mine and their house is bigger than mine and that person's smarter than me and they're a better preacher but I'm a better this or this. All that goes away when you stand in the face of Jesus Christ. But as Pastor Mike likes to say, that doesn't start the moment you die. It starts the moment that you receive Christ. So let's live into this prayer of Jesus. And just maybe some folks in the world will see the glory of God in us. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this prayer that you gave to us. Lord, it gives us a picture into what's really important to you. So God, because of that, we want it to be important to us too. Help us, Lord, to learn what it means to be real. And to love each other unconditionally in that reality. To lay our lives down so that this world could see our unity in each other and in you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.